You're listening to the Bahai World News Service. In the Democratic Republic of the Congo, wars and conflicts have claimed millions of lives and uprooted even more. For the last two years, the DRC has been the nation with the highest number of people displaced by conflict. But throughout the country, there are communities that are learning to transcend the traditional barriers that divide people. The story of the DRC is a remarkable one. Among the confusion, distrust, and obscurity present in the world today, these communities are hopeful examples of humanity's capacity to bring about profound social transformation. The following stories offer a glimpse into some Congolese communities where people are working together and drawing on Baha'i teachings to transform their collective life. <laughs> Along the eastern border of the country, in the Kivu region, young people are taking ownership of the progress of their communities. Izat Mionda Abumba travels often in the region to support Baha'i-inspired educational programs. He tells a story about a community where a group of young people sought to resolve the tension and hostility between their villages. When the friends went to participate in the youth conference, they studied various themes in the conference materials, such as false dichotomies, trying to have noble ideas, how to serve the community. Then they returned to their respective communities. When these youth returned to their respective communities, because the tribes there did not get along, there was a certain hostility over the agricultural fields. The people of the villages were in a state of hostility towards each other. Now the youth ask themselves, are we going to support this kind of conflict? Or will we do what we can to find a solution and help the adults understand that we should live in harmony? and they decided to take action together. The idea that came to them was to organize a football match involving the youth of both villages. Because if they held the match in a field between the villages, then the parents would come and watch to see what they were doing. And for them, this opportunity was not about who would win or lose the match. Their goal was to bring a large number of people from both villages together to the same place and to try to give a message about how to live in unity, how to live in harmony. So the youth prepared for the match. They went and bought a football. They created the teams of one village and the other village with the members of different tribes. And then the moment arrived for the game. Now when they organized the match, their goal was for a lot of people to come. And really, quite a big crowd from both villages turned up because it was a Sunday. 
Those watching were impressed by the way the football game was played, because for them, the goal was really the joy they would feel during the match. Then, at the end of the match, came the moment when the youth could give their message to the crowd. They said, you have seen how we played and how there was no conflict between the youth of one village and the youth of the other village. And we believe that our villages are capable of actions like this, of living like children of one same family. And since the chiefs of the villages also wanted to seize this opportunity, the chiefs then took the stage and told those gathered that the time of being separated, of not living together, is over, and that now they needed to turn a new page and start to live and work together. In villages where there are different tribes who are often in conflict, the people have begun to draw on the teachings of Baha'u'llah to find ways to address these deep-rooted problems. The Baha'i-inspired educational programs are giving youth in particular a voice to be a force for positive change. One example of a community that has taken its future into its own hands is Walungu in South Kivu, a province on the eastern side of the country that borders Rwanda and Burundi. In this remote area, the community was not satisfied with the state of formal education available to their children. So a group of parents and teachers established a school in the village with the assistance of a Baha'i-inspired organization that provides teacher training and promotes the establishment of community-based schools. Distinct from traditional educational institutions, community schools such as the one in Walungu are initiated, supported, and encouraged by the local community. Parents, extended family, other members of the community, and even the children have a deep sense of ownership and responsibility for the functioning of their school. When the school opened in 2008, it was comprised of only one grade taught by a single teacher. After a year, the community was able to add another grade, and employ a second teacher. Gradually, the school grew. Today, it is a full primary school with over 100 students. Susan Shepper, who has lived in the Democratic Republic of the Congo for decades, speaks about the school in Walungu and some of the obstacles that needed to be overcome to sustain it. Well, the problem in Walungu, and in actually many places across the country, but this was the one that I visited, and it was very poignant what I saw. The problem here was that the people just didn't have any kind of expendable funds to pay for school. But in order to have a school, that the teachers have to eat, they have to be fed, they have to have clothes, and so they somehow, they have to be paid something. And these teachers make tremendous sacrifices themselves just to be teachers. But something had to be done in order to support financially the school. So the director of this school called all of the parents to come, and he suggested that he could teach them how to make baskets, and that they could learn how to make baskets and then sell them in the markets. And with the funds that they earned from selling the baskets, they would be able to pay the school fees of their children. Well, they loved this idea, to be empowered to that point where they'd learn a new skill, they'd be able to make money, 
They'd be able to send their children to school. This was all incredibly empowering for these people. And they all signed up. 67 parents of children in this school all signed up to learn how to make baskets. And 67 of them are still making baskets to this day. It's really quite an extraordinary thing. And of course, as they're there making the baskets, they're all laughing and it's just a very happy experience because they've got this skill and they've become really good at it and they're earning money and their children are studying. And they're durable baskets. They're made out of nylon strapping. And the people love them. And, and as we were traveling throughout this area, everybody had one of these baskets, either in their hands or up on their heads or strapped to their backs. But these baskets are very widespread. So they make these baskets. They have, they have markets, not every day, but in different villages in the area. So every three days or so, there will be a, a market. And so off they go with their baskets and they sell them and then they come back and they pay their school fees. So um, this woman here was telling, telling us about um, the, this activity of making baskets has encouraged a certain material prosperity. The concept in the West of, of, of um, material prosperity might mean you know, a car or two cars, but the, the notion of prosperity is not linked to how much. The, the notion of prosperity is, is a certain comfort level in your life so that you are eliminating suffering which would otherwise be a standard norm in your life. And so by learning this skill, they are eliminating that, that suffering. It's quite an extraordinary thing. So she was, this woman was talking about the material prosperity that they get out of making these baskets and selling them, but she was saying that also there's a certain spiritual prosperity because once a week while they're making the baskets, they also have uh, um, a study period where they study the holy writings. And so they're gaining in all aspects of their lives. They're very colorful baskets. They're blue and yellow and white. And they make uh, a variety of styles. The ones that are that this one woman is making here is, is what they call the, the embroidered style. So they add, they add a, a twist to the, the fibers and that adds a, a, an extra aesthetic value to them. But they're also stronger because they, they've got an extra piece of, of strapping in them. And then there are the simple, <clears throat> the simple baskets which, which sell for less. So the people at the market actually have a variety of different kinds of baskets that they can choose from. And as the basket weaver becomes more skilled, they can more, make more and more complex designs. So you see in this one, this fellow is teaching her how to make an embroidered basket. So she'll be able to sell that one for a little bit more. Mireille Rehema Lusagila serves as a tutor for a community educational program offered by a local Baha'i-inspired organization. 
By doing this weaving activity, the women and men are not coming only to weave. They began with a devotional meeting, they read holy writings. They are improving their literacy, teaching each other how to read and write, and after that they start their weaving. The people there have told me that this activity is helping them not only to progress in a material sense, but also on a spiritual level. A remote village in the central part of the DRC, Ditalala is connected to the closest town by a 25-kilometer path, which is traveled on foot or by off-road vehicle. Susan Shepper recalls that on her first visit to Ditalala decades ago, some Baha'is had come to meet her at the train station and walk with her on the five-hour journey by foot to the village. We arrived at the, the train station and there were 25 singing Baha'is on the platform waiting for us at 11 o'clock at night and singing in these harmonies and just the most amazing music I'd ever heard, really. And we got off the train and we're just enveloped by this group of of singing happy Baha'is. And when the song finally finished, they said to us, can you walk a little bit? There's a, a village a little ways from here where the entire republic is waiting for you there. And they've been there for three days. And if you don't come tonight, they may all go home. And we said, well, of course, you know, looking up at the beautiful full moon. We said, well, how far is it? He said, oh, no more than 25 kilometers. So we thought, okay, <laughs> if they can do it, I guess we have to do it too. So off we set, and this, this tiny little woman who's a, a pygmy from the Batwa tribe came up and grabbed my backpack, which was almost as big as she was, and threw it up onto her head, and off she went. At that time, the village was known as Batwa Ditalala. Today, however, that is not the case. So flash forward 31 years... And I was asked to go back to this village of Batwa di Talala. This time, fortunately, I was able to manage to get a, a vehicle, a land cruiser, to get us from Kakenge to uh, di Talala this time, so I didn't have to walk the 25 kilometers. But the, the road is a word that I would use very loosely to describe what we were driving on to get there. There were times when it looked more like a very deep ravine, and there were times when we had to actually stop and get out the machetes and the shovels to actually rebuild parts of the road so that we could get through. And there were times when we actually got stuck and had to rebuild the road again, so there was actually something to drive on, because in many cases there was just, you'd, you'd look at it and you'd go, well, th this is impossible, we have to turn back. But the Congolese are so used to these kinds of roads, and they just they don't look at it as an impossibility. They look at it as a, oh, time to fix it. And out they get, and they, they fix it. So we arrived in, in Batwa di Talala, and it was exactly the same experience that, that I had had 31 years ago. The village before di Talala 
already there was an enormous crowd of women, men, and children there to greet us and to pull us towards their village. And we arrived there, and they were, again, singing their hearts out, and everybody wanted to shake our hands. And, and one of the things that I learned very quickly was that it was no longer called Batwa Ditalala. It was now called Ditalala. And the interesting thing about that is that the name Batwa is actually the name of a tribe, the Batwa people, who are in some quarters known as pygmies. But today, because tribal barriers have been so broken down by the message of Baha'u'llah, they no longer call the village Batwa de Italala. They just call it Ditalala. And I also found out on this trip something that I didn't know 31 years ago, was that Ditalala actually means peace. And it was a real revelation to me because I'd always wondered, what is it about this village? Because I had visited there 31 years ago, and then I started hearing, I started hearing other people talk about this village of Ditalala, and I thought, wow, is that, that's the same village that I was in 31 years ago? It's still like that? It's still so dynamic and has a population that's just so in love with, with the faith? So I always wondered, what? What is it about Ditalala? And then I found out that the name actually means peace. <laughs> the influence of Baha'u'llah's teachings is evident in many dimensions of the lives of the people. Today, over 90% of the village participates in Baha'i community building activities, ranging from coffee and prayers in the mornings to spiritual and moral education classes for people of all ages. The people have also undertaken a number of endeavors to improve their social and material well-being including agricultural, maternal health care, and clean water projects, constructing a road, and establishing a community school. What stands out so strongly in this village is how the population moves forward together. The music you heard while listening to this story was composed and recorded by Baha'i communities in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. This song is called A Great Messenger and was written for the bicentenary of the birth of Baha'u'llah. For more information, visit news.bahai.org.